there's a difference between what you should do and what you need to do in terms of the drive behind it. But uh, if you're doing what you must be doing to fulfill your ambition and goals, it should always be fun. Welcome to the Sask Entrepreneurs Podcast. Each week, we bring you an interview featuring an entrepreneur or business leader in the Saskatchewan province. We dive into their journey, lessons learned, and views on the outlook of the Saskatchewan business market. This episode is brought to you by TwoWeb. Growing your business online is overwhelming. At TwoWeb, we make it simple. Our agency has helped over 700 businesses and nonprofit organizations grow through digital marketing. Learn more and reach out to us at TwoWeb.ca. Welcome to today's episode of Sask Entrepreneurs Podcast. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Ryan Quiring, who is the CEO of Safety Tech, a leading workplace safety app that collects information more efficiently, reduces incidents, and creates a safer work environment, all while focusing efforts on incident prevention. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Ryan, tell us a little bit about your background and yourself, and how did you actually come up with this idea for Safety Tech? I went to school, I suppose, for electronic systems engineering, and that got me into, I suppose, just technical solutions, building out PCBs and microchips and trying to solve various problems through hardware. That led me then naturally into oil and gas uh, in Calgary, where kind of stepped up a little bit uh, away from the component style design boards and into uh, control systems automation. So diving a little more into how to, I guess, process natural resources, how to turn natural gas into liquid propane and, and various other elements. And then uh, once gas started to, to drop in value and oil picked up, uh, was then how do we get oil out of the ground and uh, separate it from the mud and the sand and the water? And then, of course, export that into some sort of pipeline or truck station or, or whatever. So it kind of dove into that element. And within that trajectory of my career, I ended up diving into functional safety, which is something that uh, is exceptionally desirable when you're talking about chemical processes and, and, and other high pressure systems and human life and environmental catastrophes and all these other elements that, that come into play. So functional safety is the way that we protect human life, our, the, the company's reputation, of course, the public kind of impact that a plant may have within the, the vicinity of a city or a small town or a rural landscape. And so with that, I found that there was quite a rigorous specification built out out of uh, Europe and the Middle East, where um, they would follow not only the qualitative style of, of hazard identification and kind of safeguards and risk control, but then they would actually quantify that safeguards to make sure that what they're saying they're doing from a risk reduction perspective is actually what's being accomplished. And so I, I really loved that aspect of control systems design through uh, the functional safety aspect of it. So when you're coding, you're making sure that you're not just doing one function one time and just assuming that it's correct. You question everything. Like, how, why is this sensor reading? accurate? Why should I trust it? And then you start putting voting systems in place and you add more robust interfaces to a live process. And so, okay, instead of having one sensor that could be incorrect, 
due to multitude of, of different reasons, we're going to put two different sensors in there. We're going to see if they're going to compare. And unfortunately, what ends up happening when you do a, a two style of voting system is that you don't know which one's right. <laughs> and so you're like, okay, well, is this enough? Will this satisfy the risk that exists in this system or is it not quite there? And then, you know, it may need three sensors. Then you vote three sensors and you hope that two need to agree. And so if there's ever two that are in agreement or if any, any time there's three of them that never agree uh, within a, a bandwidth, the hysteresis, then we'd end up shutting down just to fall into a safe state to make sure that uh, nothing bad happens because something's incorrect. Something's gone awry and needs to be repaired or remedied. So within that process, I started to slowly get away from control systems engineering and development and dive into more of front-end engineering called feed, where you would take the, the P&IDs or the plant designs and you'd sit with the process engineers, chemical engineers, the project managers, the electrical engineers, the mechanical engineers, and you would you'd really focus in on all of the various elements of that design that without safeguards would cause a risk to human life, a risk to reputation, a risk to environment and, and all of the uh, a risk to, to the assets that they're building and, and investing billions of dollars into. And then, and then a risk, of course, to, to the process itself and their ability to earn capital. And so with that in mind, looking at the process, the, the systems that were in place, like at the time, I suppose, it was all qualitative. And a lot of people would skip over the quantitative aspect of risk reduction, the, where you validate everything. And they weren't doing it out of nefarious means. They were doing it because it was really complicated. The big difference between a lot of the standards and specifications written out by ISA or, um, or big ANSI are that they're quite prescriptive in nature. So it's a thou shall put two sensors here, or thou shall put a pressure safety valve on every vessel, and it must do these, it must meet these criteria. Whereas these functional safety specifications are performance driven. So they don't tell you how to do it, but they say, here's like a relative process, or here is the minimum criteria that you're looking to achieve. And you can achieve it in any way possible. However, the end result must be this must be SIL 2, SIL 3, a safety integrity level of 1, 2, or 3 is what they, they monitor. Or even 4 if you get into really, really risky situations like offshore rigs. But, but anyway, because of that performance-driven system, uh, it ended up becoming super complicated for these, these engineers to really grasp because it's not prescriptive. And they had to then, it's just extra work. Right. And nobody ever scoped that work in. And so they just they gloss over it, assuming that the safeguards that they're identifying are good enough for the risk reduction that they're uh, taking credit for until they hit government regulated solutions. So anyway, I, I started to dive into that process and found that it was very difficult for these people to, to implement it. And so I built a wizard online that would take that whole front end engineering hazard analysis and feed a layer of protection analysis, which is the quantitative aspect. And then it would spit out, uh, or, or I guess not spit out, but it would deliver a safety uh, requirement specification, an SRS. And that wizard is what I built, or uh, got me into SaaS, software as a service. So I had another co-founder, two other co-founders, one that was technical and one that was sales. And then I was just, I guess, the guy who, who understood the process really well. We started to build this thing back in 2012. 
And it was really interesting because we had contacts in oil and gas like crazy with people using it, like larger oil and gas firms operating in, um, in uh, Fort McMurray and, uh, and Red Deer. And so it was going really well. And then my, my one co-founder had to exit because he'd sold another business and he was no longer able to be a director or a C-suite executive on another startup. Uh, he had to relinquish his seat. And then my other co-founder ended up moving to South Africa. So it just really removed any of the momentum that we gained. This was all I was doing. It was all part-time at the same time while I had a full-time consulting gig as well. And this was how many years into the business? About a year and a half. So we were 18 months in. So really in the earlier stages of the business, when you were developing this and, and getting things in, put together, you had the setback. We were still building. And so like, fortunately, I'd learned a lot about SaaS because I wasn't, while I'm being technical, I wasn't web technology technical. I was like C-sharp, Borland, or like a microchip firmware designer, technical or development. And then, of course, control systems has not really nothing to do with SaaS or, or sorry, with HTML or CSS until you get into some styling stuff. But m most of it was, was done externally. So this really got my feet wet in, in the software world of, of web technology. And so I took it over from my other co-founder and tried to carry it on. And I was showing it to um, my buddy at the time who looked at me and said, hey, Ryan, is there a way that we could take what you're doing in, in functional safety and apply it to occupational health and safety? He said, it seems like because it's a web technology, we could share things globally just by hitting a web page. And I said, absolutely. In fact, it probably it's actually it's way easier <laughs> to do that than it is to automate the rather complex workflows and analysis because it's, it's a lot of like the fault tree analysis, quite complicated and heavy in processing. And those calculations aren't light by any means, being that they're all integral calculations. So started to slowly disconnect from that venture as I really, was really the only one working on it at that point in time. And then uh, moved into to working on safety tech kind of part-time. So wireframing and building out the requirements, how to handle cross-regional documentation, what would be the best MVP to build. So we kind of started off with just a web app, purely web app. It was like so rudimentary <laughs> looking at like what we have today. It was just pure HTML, CSS attached to a database. And that's it. That's all we had. In addition to the setbacks that you faced earlier in the business, what kind of other challenges did you actually come across when coming to what you have today? Basically, you have a very refined product right now that is SaaS-based. And there's been a bit of a learning journey that has been that you've involved and, and gone through. So what are some of the other major setbacks that uh, you experienced to, to come to where you are today? You know, going to market in 2015 and signing, you know, about um, a handful, uh, 18 customers or something like that, we started to see uh, a real impact to performance based on the fact that we were a multi-tenant system. So we didn't have a distributed database. It was a, a singular database, and then we managed everything through permissions and privileges. So we, we found a gigantic slowdown for all clients kind of uh, across the board at that point. And so because people were accessing everything directly on the server, we, we didn't have APIs to offload any of that compute. What ended up happening was, uh, was we had to migrate everyone into, I guess, a more scalable, faster database structure. And so that's when we introduced uh, an, an unstructured data set of uh, Neo4j was the technology that we, we ended up selecting. 
to move away from RDS. Another issue that we also found was because we were still building, we had an MVP, but we were collecting feedback from the clients as to what they wanted. And as we were iterating with an RDS, we ended up breaking a lot while we added functionality, just the way that we, it was structured to begin with. So with Neo4j, what it ended up doing was it allowed us to be a little more agile in how we add things. We could, we could uh, run through and, and update the database with a new meta tag real quick on a node or an, develop a new relationship with, uh, with ease and like, kind of refactor the database from there without impacting a lot of the other existing functionality. So that was kind of the, the step one. And then once we signed up more companies, we signed up about 44 new companies in 2016. And uh, the load was not hitting us too hard at that point in time. So Ryan, what is the big, hairy, audacious goal that you have for your business? So from the very start, it's been industry standard. That has been what I would love to achieve with Safety Tech so that it becomes synonymous with workplace safety implementation, just like Uber or Skip the Dishes is in food delivery or getting a taxi, those types of things don't really, there's no hesitancy to uh, arriving at an airport and just opening Uber and jumping in one because that's, it's, it's just so easy. So that's what I want with, with Safety Tech. And the company thinks about workplace safety. The first thing that pops in their mind is Safety Tech. It can be implemented in, in minutes. So what are some of the biggest roadblocks that are actually helping you achieve that vision? As far as biggest goes, there, there are plenty. And, uh, and this is stuff that, uh, you know, perhaps uh, either overlooked or um, didn't fully comprehend up front. But one thing that we're realizing is that in the midst of a pandemic as well, but is that the, the appetite for a lot of the industry isn't high to solve the safety problem. This, I think, dives into more behavioral issues than, than anything and, and the view of safety. How is safety viewed? I was chatting with a, a safety manager yesterday about um, what ends up happening after somebody implements safety tech because we completely free them up from all the admin work. So traditionally, safety managers who are knowledge workers are splitting their time between administrative tasks like paperwork, documentation, filing, kind of surveying the, the information on the document itself. And then, of course, writing initiatives, implementing policy updating safe work practices, getting feedback from the field. When they implement us, that 80-20 shift flips and it becomes 20% admin work instead of 80% admin work. And they're able to then really dive in and become a true knowledge worker in the sense that they're delivering value from their brain instead of physical tasks being completed. My thought is that a lot of the safety managers that are in place as either consultants or really knowledgeable seasoned veterans are uncomfortable with that because they're so used to just doing something the same way. Not everybody has an innovative mindset or a growth mindset or some of the things that I value of having, uh, you know, challenging everything. I think that because they don't, they're just comfortable and they're like working to retirement. That's their goal. They have no ambition to remove workload, change anything that they're doing. And they, they rule almost authoritatively as opposed to getting the proper buy-in from the, the field. And I think that if and I'm totally painting with a 
broad stroke here, but I feel as though that has contributed negatively to the overall views on safety in the field and being negative. Do as I say, not as I do kind of thing, as opposed to getting the, the field level workers feedback on how to perform their job safely without injuring themselves or others. It's more, um, I'm going to tell you how you're supposed to do your job and you're going to do it that way, whether you're in agreement or not. And so with that in mind, one of the things that we really, really overlooked was that ratio. How many safety managers in the field today are of the innovative mindset and how many are not? And so when, when it comes to uh, client acquisition, you really need to vet who you're speaking with. Another bigger hurdle that we've hit is um, safety people are not software buyers. How do you now empower or champion a safety professional into um, intelligently pushing this up the channels that they need to internally to get an approval to spend money on something that's an intangible, like a software piece? That's been a real struggle, especially in a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that would be a huge hurdle, obviously, because uh, you have to close deals. Part of customer acquisition costs is to be able to convince your prospect that you are the right fit, the right solution. But when there's hierarchy of decision makers that you have to essentially convince, how do you deal with that challenge? So we ended up moving away from what I would have called our ideal customer profile early on, where we had huge adoption from people who were solving us not for the safety behavior aspect, but for the compliance piece, they were solving compliance. And so while that is fine and dandy, compliance is, is one thing, but that's like the bare minimum, right? If you're just doing, if you're just scraping by hitting those compliance tick marks, then that means that, that there's so much room for improvement and growth that, that we could take it completely elsewhere. But at, at any rate, so we ended up moving to the bigger firms instead of the, the 20 employee firms, we started to aim for, you know, 75 to 150 employee firms where there was a little more sophistication. They had a department or like a dedicated resource specifically for safety, as opposed to like a, an HR person who also wears a safety hat or an administrator who also wears a safety hat. By moving upstream, typically we would get introduced to an IT professional of some sort, whether it be a consultant or a full-time IT manager who understood software. And then they could properly vet and validate and understand the value proposition because everyone understands that removing paper is a valuable tool in any, like it could be for accounting, it could be document sharing, whatever it happens to be. Removing paper is, is an absolute positive trajectory. So doing that really helped with our client acquisition. Because now we were speaking, we could charge more because those people were, they knew how much software cost. They had purchased software in the past and they were familiar with the, the value propositions of software as a service. And they're slowly moving off-prem. Like, so, the, you know, a lot of things traditionally in the, in the past would have been built on an internal server by their IT groups, but their IT groups are just inundated with other projects that they're working on for other aspects of the business, the operating business. So we have really great conversations with them. And that was going really well. 2018, 2019. And then in 2020, you know, we, we started recruiting people to help us with the sales process in those larger firms. And uh, the pandemic interrupted that sales pipeline significantly. How has that pandemic impacted the business? Uh... Yeah. So we, um, 
our whole sales pipeline on enterprise side of things, and by enterprise, I mean like that north of, of 200 employee firms completely disappeared. I think everyone went into uh, cash flow retention mode as opposed, and I did the same thing as opposed to uh, continuing to spend and invest in uh, the operation because the uncertainty was too high. And then once things started to settle down, you know, by May, June, understanding a bit more about what the pandemic was about, more and more people were spending. But so in order to counter that, what we ended up doing was building a, a, a workplace safety health assessment tool, a dashboard. So it allowed firms to monitor and measure, you know, the risk based on self-qualified symptomatic checks daily. We help them kind of point in the direction of a potential risk for an outbreak occurring at a specific project or a specific site or a specific crew of users, group of users, who would then, you know, we'd be able to, to say, okay, well, if this person's showing three out of the eight symptoms, let's let that person work in isolation or send them home for the day or whatever to see if these pass and, and what's going on there. And that actually ended up helping us in, in 2020 with growth. We didn't grow at the rate we were hoping for, but we did hit about a 40% growth rate for 2020, signing up these COVID-19 solutions. And we, we entered into verticals that I would have normally never heard of, like banking. We signed up a bank from New York and a children's hospital out of Texas and uh, like all of these different types of new clients that we were, we were bringing in the door, which was really interesting. Has your ideal customer changed now? You know, it ended up splitting our resources and our efforts because uh, when EHS came, sort of came back, it's not fully back yet, but we're starting to see, you know, signals of, of that returning. We had, we had to then learn how to demo two different systems. And a lot of the people that had hired in 2020 never learned our core system. <laughs> so they didn't know how to demo it. They didn't know how to to showcase it or highlight it to a prospect. And so there's a lot of retraining and a lot of learning to do when we got there. And because our ideal customer, what I would have called our ideal customer profile, wasn't the ones coming to us with inquiries. It was all these smaller firms, you know, 50 to 20 to, to 50 to 60 employee firms that were get, trying to get back to normal, trying to get back to operating and solving the problem again. So we were kind of in this really this limbo spot and we're still analyzing prospects that are coming in the leads that are showing up what the red string is what's the red line through them all that we can identify as coherent synergy but we're not there yet but i'm starting to see more leads anyway so what ended up happening in the long term is that we'd signed up these customers on this COVID stuff boosted our revenue and then when COVID disappeared in early 2021 they, a lot of them churned. A lot of them just kind of stopped using the system because there was no longer a requirement from their health authority to report on symptoms. And now we're starting to see a little bit of a resurgence in the inquiries because of the COVID, the vaccine mandates and the passports that are coming out. And, and people need a way to, to analyze who has them, who doesn't, and do a quick glance and, and create reports on, on that detail, like a training record. So going into 2022, I'm, I don't know, now with this new variant, which we're hearing mixed news, I would say, but from what I, the sources that I trust, it's like Fauci, and that he's saying it's less severe, but yet we still need more data to analyze to find out if, it's, uh, if that's accurate. 
But if it's less severe and is able to outcompete Delta, I think we're in really good shape then for for seeing I mean, what would be the end of the pandemic. But don't want to get too ahead of myself. I was hoping that 2022 would, would absolutely be the end, especially with, with children's vaccines rolling out. What does the vision look like? What does the, what does the next two, three years look like for safety tech? So I guess w- one thing the pandemic did stress was it, it shifted the goalposts for what we were needing to offer our ideal customer profile in that um, when they all had to work remotely, when everyone had to work remotely, it flexed, it highlighted the fractures that were in place with the data silos that they currently had within their systems. And so instead of being able to communicate in the office, in this, it would just verbally really quick capture information so that you can plug in your spreadsheet or whatever tool you were using to track things you were, you were working on. That now warranted either a phone call or a Zoom meeting or some other, uh, some other way that, that required more effort. And so for us, what ended up happening was we started to see um, like API and integrations become standardized where it's just you have to. If you want to implement any software in any of these firms that have an IT group, it's required that you have integrations as an option. And so that was, that's something that we're, we're building now into our systems so that we can more holistically and comprehensively solve for safety, but then also plug our data into project management, into HR, into payroll, into all of these other systems that they need to operate effectively as, a, as an organization. So that's was flexed, I suppose, as far as what we were able to offer the industry and what we didn't have, but was in the pipeline. It just kind of shifted a lot of our pipeline around into building more of this kind of ecosystem style of product. And so 2022, with that in mind, I'm, I'm starting to see a lot of the buying patterns return to normal. I feel like even if Omicron goes through uh, the population, the governments are going to have a real hard time locking down again. So I, I can see that, uh, that that won't be impacted and companies are going to continue to operate a little more normally. I'm seeing just, I guess, buying patterns return to normal. Our goal is then to, uh, of course, get up to a, a revenue level where, where we can start to raise Series A, grow the team, figure out a lot more of the remote work culture, because that is uh, a new nut to crack. And uh, lots of companies have it. I'm, I'm really curious to see how Google and Twitter and some of these other larger tech companies that have gone full-time remote are handling... Um, I guess, mental health in general, support systems for their employees, how to garner engagement and to keep people active. Not necessarily like, of course, productivity is, is a level of, of measurement that you can use, but there's other metrics that I feel are, um, are necessary. Not just how, how open is your uh, computer and how much lines of code did you write, but quality as well, right? So how, how do we measure somebody's Ability to contribute remotely and work in a team because it's it's really there's it works for a lot but it certainly does not work for just as many. <laughs> I mean, remote work definitely has its convenience and inefficiencies, but it also has its own challenges. And you know, companies are struggling to continue to foster the culture that they are trying to incorporate in terms of work, and it's becoming a big challenge. Even with all the digital tools that we have that personal connection is still missing and we are social animals by nature. So, so there needs to be some sort of a resolution there. We lose the camaraderie. 
there is no more tribe because we're so disconnected through screens and technology, like, and, and even the screen time, like at least going out for a lunch with uh, your team, you can escape screen glare and the strain that happens on your eyes and, and just in, in general. So how, how do you combat that in a remote environment? And I, I don't know the answer to that, but that's uh, certainly a good, good question to be pondering. So on more of a personal note, I mean, you've obviously been building safety tech since 2013. You've had your ups and downs. What, are, what is your take on work-life balance? Because uh, it's tough being an entrepreneur and working on a startup and trying to make that vision a reality. And with our personal life either coming in the way or being part of us, how do you actually juggle the two together? Great question. And it's been something that's been, I would say, burning in the back of my mind for a while in that it can be all, all consuming. An entrepreneur can, can seem manic in a lot of ways uh, <laughs> when you observe them from the outside. But here's where I've been able to land, I think, in some sort of theory around what work-life balance is for an entrepreneur. Because when we talk about work-life balance, it's usually from the, the perspective of an employee working for a corporate conglomerate or, or some sort of larger firm that they have no ownership of. They're just a contributor to the value chain that exists there. So for work-life balance as an entrepreneur, I feel as though they're the same thing. If you, uh, if you, here's a, actually a great signal to understand if what you're doing is your passion. If you feel drained from working on your thing, that indicates that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing because entrepreneurship should not drain you. That's uh, a signal that, that I feel people get confused on. It's not hard work. Entrepreneurship, you should, for me, it's, I'm solving a problem. I'm extremely passionate about it. I don't ever stop working in, I guess, the definition of, of work. It's not draining to me that I, I get energized when I get to, to put energy or effort into solving this problem. It fills me up and therefore I can continue Moving. And it makes me a better person just in general, because I'm happier when I'm energized. I can then fulfill my other personal relationships with my kids, with my friends, with my family. And I can talk about workplace safety all day and how, how we're solving the problem. And, and I can, it's, it never leaves my brain. I think the, the, the word that I was using prior was entropic in nature. It's the antithesis uh, of that in that it's, it doesn't deplete your resources. And so for work-life balance as an entrepreneur, if you're doing what you're passionate about, you shouldn't ever, that should never cross your mind. So if you know your why and your purpose, then entre entrepreneurship is energizing. That's why I think also a lot of entrepreneurs, they get into business, if they don't know why they're in business for and, and what their purpose is, they, they tend to fatigue after a little while. And when a challenge comes, unfortunately, they cannot sustain their business. And we've seen that a lot. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we have such a high rate of business failures out there, but you're in it for the wrong reasons. But what I find is that if you're in it for the right reasons, you have the grit and, and the determination to continue to push and plow forward and basically make your idea happen. Absolutely. And I think that there's, there's really clear-cut signals to monitor for you know, energy levels being, being one of them. But there's also uh, you know, a couple of my core values would be... Um, beyond like a growth mindset and being as authentic as possible. It's also fun. I think fun is a feeling that we all recognize when we're having it. 
and perhaps it might seem nuanced by nature, but if you're not having fun while you're doing what you're doing, that is a, a clear signal to me anyway, that uh, you're not, you're not, you either need to learn more about what you're doing because you're, you're not confident or you're insecure about what it is that you're working on, or you're not doing what you really care about. It's not anything that is on your radar in terms of what could be potentially fun. There are a tons of ways that if you're doing what you want to be doing or not want to, but that need to be doing, there's a difference between what you should do and what you need to do in terms of the drive behind it. But uh, if you're doing what you, what you must be doing to fulfill your ambition and goals, it should always be fun. Now, there might be bumps in the road, but then that is a signal that you need to just quickly double down and learn about that gap. And then you can become confident and continue progressing forward. True. So Ryan, hindsight is twenty twenty. If you were to do something differently today about your business, what would that be? Two parts. I think there's something, but what would I do differently for my business and what would I do differently in my own life? Because those are, uh, I think, two things that I never considered when going down this journey and, and how it would, uh, what, and, and the, the things that I needed to work on personally before being mature enough, I suppose. <laughs> Again, that authenticity piece. I feel like um, a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs because they think they, they see the tip of the iceberg, right? They see the success stories of the, the people who have made it or the people who have done it, but they don't see the, the detail of the six-year grind that they were in. And so if you go into entrepreneurship or become an entrepreneur because you want to be recognized or you want to be saluted or, or whatever for recognition, you know, you're going to have a real hard time because a lot of what entrepreneurs do is not in the public light. It's working till two in the morning and stressing out over payroll or name any million number of problems. So don't do things because uh, you, you feel like you want to be put on the spotlight. And I would say that's probably a, a golden rule for life, not just for entrepreneurship. But that would indicate that you aren't being authentic. Like it, if you really dive in, you're, you're playing a role in whatever group or community that you happen to be participating in for alternative reasons. So that's something I would have liked to really double down more so on authenticity because it would have changed a few decisions that I would have made as we progressed, you know, it would have helped me identify my contribution to the firm overall. It would have helped me really value what I, what I was doing a little bit more and not um, just assume that anyone can do it. Or um, I would have probably listened to, I would have paid it more, a little more attention to the characters that I had been meeting along the way as well and monitoring their actions and their, their words to find out if they were in alignment, because there's a lot of people and I still get these connections on a regular basis who, um, who say they want to help for one low fee of $3,000 a month. I can get them to, to shed their experience on me so that they can make me successful. It's just, I'm learning more and more and more that they don't even know what they're doing in, in a, <laughs> a lot of ways. And so I think for 10 years ago, for me, authentic, uh, like diving into authenticity, character assessment, you know, aligning people who don't drain me 
I think monitoring that energy level and listening to it as an intuition, as opposed to uh, overriding that with my brain or my intellect and talking myself into things that uh, may not have been a good decision because I felt like that was what I needed to do for my role in the community or uh, whatever to satiate some other aspect beyond my desire to solve the problem that I'm solving. So based on your experience and the challenges that you've overcome, if there was one big takeaway that you could give to our listeners, what would that be? Set your core values. I know that this sounds cliche or or I don't know if it's cliche, but it's like it kind of gets over overstated a lot on the importance, but don't set corporate. Don't worry about corporate core values. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, your individual is you as a human. What are your core values? And if you don't know, then monitor your behavior over a while, over a period of time, and just find out what you gravitate toward. And then listen, like kind of, there's a rule of thumb in sales I learned of asking five whys. If you take the five whys instead of asking an external person, internalize that. So if you see yourself gravitating towards something, coding or learning or doing some other aspect of it, I would say, the, direct the five whys to yourself as a why. Okay, why am I interested in this? Well, it's going to do this for me. Okay, well, why is it going to do that for you? Or why do I think it's going to do that for me, right? And then really get to the root of it. I feel like once you can set those core values, then you're able to, to really progress forward and test your new relationships that you build and the new people that get involved in your life to see if they align with those core values. Not directly, you don't need to like specify or like make it print it out and hand it to them and say, Hey, can you test yourself? But like just through conversation, through asking when you do it enough times, it becomes commonplace. And there was a great line from Eastern philosophy. I I forget. uh, I think it was from the Vedantic books. Ultimately, if you're searching for peace and prosperity as an ultimate goal in your life, just in general, like I think peace and prosperity are two things that everyone would be looking to, to grasp. If you lead with prosperity, and your, your life is chaotic, then your prosperity will be chaotic. You will never achieve peace. But if you can lead with peace, prosperity will follow and you will have a peaceful prosperity. That peace comes from living authentically, knowing those core values. So that's kind of the foundation that I feel of personal development prior to becoming mature enough to, to become an entrepreneur and have success and be, be able to make decisions from a place of calm as opposed to from reactionary state. Ryan, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today and get insights on how you've, you're growing Safety Tech and we wish you the best of success. Where can people find out more about you and how can they contact you online? Yeah, they can connect with me on, on LinkedIn. I think uh, that's one of the, the best channels at this point because anyone can search it. You can find uh, access to the, what we're, the problem we're solving you know, on safetytechsoftware.com. Uh, that's Safety Tech safetytechsoftware.com. And then of course, uh, I think Instagram or whatever else, but you can search me up. But I think LinkedIn is probably the, the best bet, Ryan Query. We'll definitely include the links to the, to the website as well as your LinkedIn profile. And again, thank you very much for taking the time today and uh, wish you best of success. All right. My pleasure. Love talking about this stuff. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode useful. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can see more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at saskentrepreneurs.com. 
That's S-A-S-K, entrepreneurs.com. This episode is brought to you by TwoWeb. Growing your business online is overwhelming. At TwoWeb, we make it simple. Our agency has helped over 700 businesses and nonprofit organizations grow through digital marketing. Learn more and reach out to us at TwoWeb.ca.